Camino de Palermo. Bienvenidos al Camino de Palermo. Do you like the way I'm saying it? Well, what is the Camino de Palermo? Camino de Palermo. Wait, what was the name of the Camino you went on? De Santiago. <laughs> Camino de Santiago. Oh, Camino de Santiago. That's what there I said. Hello, my friends. Eric Feltis here, life coach, speaker, actor, and host of The Great Unbecoming. This is a show about stories of unlearning. What did you let go of in order to become the person you are today? And what did you gain and learn as well? This is a show about letting go of stories that no longer serve us and stepping into our own authenticity. It's about unbecoming what society says you should be and remembering who you are and who you are meant to be. So sit back, relax, and welcome to The Great Unbecoming. <laughs> That's exactly what you said. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know why, but when I say things in Spanish, I like to talk like this. Hola, bienvenidos. I, what is Camino de Palmer Palermo? I'm going to have to look it know. up. I studied abroad like no. over 10 years ago, and it was something from that. There's something from my days of studying abroad. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Y'all, thank you so much. That's the end of our podcast episode. I'll see you next week. <laughs> anyway, I, it's, it's going to be all uphill from here. I have some dude on that did some sort of a commuter to something. I don't know. Um, I'm so just some rando. Yeah, speak, <laughs> he's got this rando. Speaking of this rando that I, I don't even know who he is, I'm going to read his bio, though, that he sent me. Um, so Reverend Dr. Jonathan Zenz holds two ordinations with the two primary denominations under the New Thought umbrella and a doctorate in consciousness studies from Emerson Theological Institute. He's a native of Tucson, Arizona, where he was born, raised, and where he attended the University of Arizona receiving a degree in theater production. He spent much of his adult professional life as a successful theater actor and singer in Los Angeles, California. He also had success as an Emmy Award nominated television producer in New York City. Dr. Jonathan was called to ministry in 2005 upon completion of his studies in 2011 when he, he was hired to serve as the spiritual director at the Center for Spiritual Living Toronto in Ontario, Canada, where he served until 2017. Following his departure from Canada, Dr. Jonathan returned to Tucson and, and founded the independent spiritual community Tucson New Thought before stepping into the role of senior minister at Unity of Tucson on April 1st, 2020. Ooh, that was a good year. <laughs> Dr. Jonathan has dedicated his life to the deepest understanding and experience of the divinity or God essence found within all people and inspiring everyone to recognize this and live this for themselves. He's committed to community development and compassion, connection, cooperation. Ooh, he likes alliteration. And above all, love. With the global intention of eliminating the perceived gap between the human and the divine, Jonathan blends his background in theater and television production to bring a high-spirited presentation style to the teachings of new thought and offer them for consideration in forward-thinking ways. And I have been a part of his service and have seen it, and it is very true what he's saying. Jonathan shares his life with his husband, Dane, and his pronouns are he, them. Hello, Dr. Jonathan. First of all, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And, you know, before we started, I was, I, I realized there are things I would like to say publicly, and that is how much I appreciate you and what you do in this world, Eric. Uh, I, there is such a need for, for the magnificence that you're bringing to this world. 
And so thank you for, thank you for living your authentic life so outwardly and helping others to do the same. I mean, I appreciate that and I receive it. And I could say the exact same about you. I think that you and I were very attracted to each other when we found each other on Tucson. I think, um, as my friend Rev Jefferson says, that which you are seeking seeks you. And I think that you are a reflection of that work as well. Not only does it seek you, but the thing that you are seeking is the thing that is doing the seeking. Wait, say that slower. Say it, pause. Say it again. So, so the thing that you are seeking is the very thing that is doing the seeking. I feel high right now. I need you to explain that because I get it, but I can't repeat it. So part of my, part of my theological background is uh, rooted in this idea that there is no, there's no divine being out there that God is beingness and it is infinite. And so there can be nothing separate from that. And so we cannot be separate from God essence, who the whole of who we are body, mind, and soul is 100% God. And so when we think we are seeking God, it's actually God seeking God. Mm, I love that. And what I love about that, and this is sort of the, the theological understanding, this is the point of view of the New Thought Church, if I understand correctly, is that God is, is us, we are God. And what I love that is that so many Christians, myself in the past, and I would say still I trip up on this a lot, uh, we, we separate ourselves from God. I think that when Jesus said, you know, I believe Jesus's call to action was to raise our consciousness to his level. But instead, what we did was we pushed Jesus above us and then we crucified him because raising our consciousness to his level, which is I think what you're talking about is recognizing that God in me sees the God in you and vice versa. That's a lot can be a lot more uncomfortable, especially when it goes against the grain of what we've been taught our whole lives. Absolutely, it can. It's, it, it's actually quite terrifying for people. We, you know, people come into my spiritual center, to my church, and they hear me up on the platform. And I say, we must be willing to claim, I am God, so are you, we are all God. And they hear blasphemy. They hear, oh my gosh, you are setting yourself above other people. And that's not at all. I say that knowing who we are, actually remembering who we are, <laughs> Yeah, he says, "Love only, forgive everything. Remember who we are." If you're not watching on YouTube, you can you can switch over to YouTube later and see it. Yeah, um, knowing who we are, remembering who we are, for me is the great equalizer. Because when I know who I am and I know who you are, then there can only be equity. There can only be inclusion. There can there can be no isms. There can be no phobias when we fundamentally know the truth of our identity. I mean, gosh, this goes, this is, this directly reflects what I see in the comments on virtually a daily basis. And sometimes I get caught in the weeds and upset and play into it and play into the fear. But oftentimes I think, oh, this person that is sending me to hell, that's a direct reflection of how they view the world around them. What a conditionally loving God and how scary for them. Someone telling me, oh, I must not have a father because of that old myth that if you're gay, you, you have an absent father. And I think, oh, wow, what is your relationship with your father like? What sort of conditional love does your father hold against you? Um, and I, for me, when I think of it from that way, it, it, it invites compassion into the conversation. And I think how scary for you if you view the world in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, my, when we, when I talk about love only the rooted in that idea really is the construct of compassion. And I try to meet everyone right where they are. I don't have to agree with everyone. 
Um, but I must love everyone. I must approach them and experience them, them with a compassionate heart. That's a, well, and that's a decision that I've made, uh, in how I choose to live my life. Is it always easy for you? Cause you, God, you make it no. look so easy. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you see the outward appearance of ease. It's not always easy. It's right. not always easy. And you know, we probably want this to be an evergreen kind of podcast. No, we want it to be real. But, you know, I spoke this past Sunday um, about what just happened in the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and how challenged I was by that. And, I, and actually, you don't even know this, Eric. I actually came out to my community hmm. in a deeper way saying two things. I said, number one, I have the privilege of being able to pass in this world mm. looking the way that I do. And yet what most people don't know about me is that I'm a masculine presenting non-binary person mm -hmm. that my core identity is non-binary, but I present masculine. I mostly people will use he, him pronouns, mm -hmm. but I am open to they, them pronouns as well. Mm -hmm. And it was a little terrifying to come out in front of my community to say, just so you know, your minister is non-binary because mm, yeah. I've never stated that publicly before. Um, but what happened in the Supreme Court with this ruling in the 303 creative case um, is a challenge. And yet my call to my community was to recognize what you are for as opposed to what you are against and then stand firm in what it is you are for mm. and let that be the driving motivation. Because it's very easy to get combative and to be against things. Sure. But if we stand firm in what we are for, then, and if we are for love, if we are for forgiveness, if we are for compassion, and we allow that to inform our thoughts, inform our deeds, intentions, and actions, then right where we are, we are creating a more peaceful, just, and equitable world. And you're, you're also kind of shining a light on uh, the dangers and the symptoms of having a two party system and living in a, a world of social media where, I mean, neurologically speaking, negative news hits us at a five times heavier rate than positive news. And that goes back to the caveman days of, you know, you, you, you have to run from a saber toothed tiger. So you need more and the negative news has, it's comes from a place of survival, but now it's tearing us apart. And what I'm hearing from you is the change starts from within. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, here's the thing. I would say, I can't change you. You need to make a decision to change if that's what you want in your life. What I can do is be, as Jesus was, a way shower of something else. And, you know, the, and I want to go back to what you said, too. You know, when Jesus said many times, the Father and I are one, he was not excluding himself. He was saying, the Father and I, the I, the infinite I, we are all the father. We are all that power. We are all that presence. That's how I understand and, and interpret scripture there. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it makes people so angry. It does. Oh, good. They just shake their it fist. Does. So, yeah. so you and I met on TikTok, and, um, we did had a, developed a nice friendship there. And then, uh, talked about coming to your church in Tucson. You and Dane were mm -hmm. wonderful hosts. And let me stay in the little huddle. I call it a huddle hut, the hut. What do you call it again? <laughs> <laughs> casita. The casita, which is right yes. next to a beautiful little uh, little studio apartment right next to 
where your sanctuary where you worship. And I got to meet yeah. some of your community members and oh my gosh, you just have such a beautiful, welcoming, wonderful community. And I can't wait to come back. It was so much fun. That was I about a year ago. Yeah. Um, it was October. Oh, wow. Year, yeah. That's right. That's right. And you're in Tucson. So it felt like it was summer, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was great. Um, and I, I, where do I go from here? I want to start. I want to hear about your transformation because the way you just described everything is exactly what the great unbecoming is. It's remembering who you, it's letting go of that, which no longer serves you remembering who you are. So you mentioned recently that you came out as to, to your community as non-binary. Can we rewind the tape for when you were kind of in the closet and, and tell us a little bit about your own story coming to terms to your own authenticity? Wow. Well, there are many parts to this story and the first part of the story is me opening up to a realization, first of all, that I was gay. And, you know, that is a journey that, um, I, I, I mean, it's a unique journey for everyone. And yet there's a commonality in that journey for everyone because owning up to your own authentic identity is really hard, especially when it seems to fly in the face of what is acceptable in society. And I came out in, 1991, I'm, I'm giving away my age now, um, when I was 18 years old, I came out to my family in 1991, when I was 18 years old, I started coming out to, um, friends and fan uh, to friends when I was in high school, I started saying, Hey, I think I'm probably gay or bi. I don't know who knows. Like, I think this is kind of who I am. Um, but I never really claimed it until 1991 and decided, no, this is actually my identity and I'm going to live proudly within that identity. Uh, that was part of the difficulty in that is that that is a time that is a period of time that was very challenging because I was having my sexual awakening, my coming of age right at the height of the AIDS crisis. And so for me, there was a correlation in my mind that being a gay man was equivalent to a death sentence. Like that's really how I, and, and I think even to this day, like I still have some hangups with the expression of sexuality because there's an underlying trauma there that is like, that is fear-based in with that construct of AIDS. So Uh, I've heard, I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, so that's really like my coming out. Now, of course you hear the stories. I had a really, I actually had a really good coming out. I had a really great experience. My, uh, my, my parents were so supportive. Um, I was not one of the stories that it was like, oh my gosh, get out of the house. You know, we're kicking you out because we can't handle this. And so it was very supportive environment that I was in Tucson, um, in a very, well, even though it's a very purple state it was a very red state back then. Uh, but we've gotten a lot more purple. Uh, Tucson's always been a very blue pocket. And so it felt very comfortable. It's a university town. So like being on campus and being active politically in the gay movement, the gay rights movement was a very easy thing to kind of fall into. So there was a lot of ease in that when I finally was okay with and comfortable with saying, yes, this is who I am. 
So this, so that's part one of coming out as a gay man. And 18 is pretty young, especially in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. It was very young. Mm-hmm. And people joke. <laughs> I, have, I have a friend of mine who jokes and he says, you know, Jonathan, you did not just come out of the closet. You exploded <laughs> out of the closet. And when you fly over Tucson, you can still, still see the scorch marks all over the city. <laughs> um, you're very dramatic. I'm not surprised. I've seen you preach. That's, I'm not surprised by that. It's true. I did you do it in a song good. and dance? <laughs> um, I could have. Actually, I didn't come out to my dad. I asked somebody to out me to my dad. Oh, Which is, wow. yeah. Oh, gosh, I, t- I haven't thought about this in so long. Uh, I remember I had decided shortly after graduation from high school, I said, this summer I'm coming out. We had taken this road trip to California. It was like a two-week road trip. I'm like, I'm coming out to my dad on this road trip. I never did it. We got back and we were, um, he was putting the house we were living in up for sale because he was about to move in with his girlfriend. They were going to get married and everything. And I had already come out to her. And so this one day I said, this is the day that I'm doing it. The... (laughs) The coincidence and irony is that we were literally building a wall in kind of the renovation of this house. So I'm out there with like every every hammer stroke. I'm like wow. pounding nails. I'm like, I could come out to him now. Do it now. <laughs> and I couldn't do you it. You just couldn't take the leap. I had let her know that this was my intention. And she called and said, hey, I'm supposed to be coming over for dinner. Have you said anything to him yet? Like, do you want me to wait? I said, no, no, no. Come over, come over, come over. So she came over and I thought, I have about 10 minutes now if I'm going to do it before she gets here. And I didn't do it. Perfect time. Oh, look who's here. I didn't do it. Oh, and you didn't do it. Okay. So she arrives, they go, they sit down in the living room and the way that our living room was set up, I know this is like a long, like drawn out story. The way the living room was set up is like the main, like the main, like, like, uh, lazy boy chairs. That's what I will call them. Um, the mm-hmm. backs of them were to the front door. And my dad, they sat down and my dad said, hey, why don't you go out and pick up some to-go food? I said, okay. And I walk up and I paused at the door and I, and I guess they could feel my energy because they both turned around and looked at me. I burst into tears and I turned to his girlfriend and I said, will you mm-hmm. please just tell him? And I ran out the door. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to cry for you, sweet Zenzi. And so I drive to go pick up some to-go food, absolutely bawling the whole way. I get in line, I order the food, and all I'm now thinking is, what is it going, what am I going to face when I get home? It's too late late now. So I get the food, continue to cry. I get back uh, and I, I walk in the door. My dad is sitting in the living room just by himself thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what to expect here. But he basically just said, he said the most loving things. He said, I love you and I support you. And this Mm -hmm. is the truth of your being. And how could that ever be anything other than right? He said, Mm -hmm. then he said, now the difficulty you had with coming out to me, maybe you should talk to somebody about that. And so I agreed to, I, mm. I basically agreed to go into um, some support to get some support from a therapist. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I could it have gone any better? Like to, for a dad, especially, you know, a, a, a man in the nineties, right. To say, I support you and your mental health. 
oh my gosh, I know so many men today that wouldn't go to therapy or recommend their son go to therapy. That's unbelievable. My dad's a really, you know what? My dad is a really special guy. He's a really special guy. And I'm grateful he's actually, he's actually the tech director for my church now. Like he's in it with me. You know, I, I always get emotional when I hear stories of men supporting straight cisgender, particularly straight cisgender white men supporting uh, us queer people. And I think I've preached about this before. I think that for so many of us, that straight cisgender white man is the face of our trauma. That's the face of the person that threw food at me in the lunchroom. That's the face of the person who called me the F slur. And with privilege comes a lot of responsibility. I don't think that most straight cisgender male allies understand how impactful their support really is. Um, it's not to say that we don't feel that that support from women, but for, I don't know about you, but for me, I've just always felt safer in front of women. So for a man just to hug me and say, I love you, this is who you are, um, it, it, it's just a different experience. So if you're listening to this and you fall into that category, you matter and we need you. Raise your voice, please. Louder. I love that story. Okay, so it went pretty well. Um, you came out as gay then, and then, um, and, and did you grow, I don't think you said this in your bio, did you grow up Christian, or did you grow up? I was up? unchurched growing up. How, what, okay, unchurched. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Uh, and as I look at the flow of my life, growing up unchurched in this country does not mean that you are not fundamentally in a Christian paradigm because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Mm. And the, mm. the, when I started to recognize that I had a call to ministry, um, before that I was very resistant to even stepping foot inside even a new thought church. I was like, I don't do church. I don't do religion. I, it's not for me. I have a very bad taste in my mouth around what it has done for my brothers and sisters in this community. And I will not be a part of that. Sure. So that's the other story. But I want, and I do want to get there before we get there. I, I think what you said is really interesting and it's very true. So like, you know, my tagline, you know, is I help gay men. I say gay, but I mean, gay, bi, trans people identify as male to free themselves from church shame. And I get a lot of people will say, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have any church shame. And then I'll ask a couple more questions. And then they say that they cry themselves to sleep at night for being gay. And I'm like, mm, you do. And I'm not saying it all stems from church, but so I just made a video about this. Why church shame? Because so much of our shame stems from the church, whether it's through the Bible or through our parents or through media, or just the absence of seeing queer stories growing up. In my opinion, that stems from not just the church, but the intersectionality of the church and the radical far right and their collected agenda, regardless of who you are. So can you, can you say more about that? Like not growing up Christian, can you touch a little bit on how, what messages were you receiving about being gay? Well, part of it was, part of, part of the message was not having any representation in media growing up because in the eighties and nineties, it did not exist. You know, Ellen did not come out until what, 1997, I think it was. The fact that you can say one person's name too, like we all know who right. Ellen is and it's the right. one. I remember yeah. there was this huge controversy on the original Melrose Place because there was a gay character on Melrose Place, but they could never show this person actually having any kind of intimate relationship with another man. And the episode where they were 
going to go and actually show him kissing another man, they show someone looking out the window to see, and just as they were about to touch lips, it cuts to the person's reaction. You don't ever actually see them kiss. And I think that was what, that was the culture at the time. You could not show it at all. And so... I want to, I need to say also the fact that the story isn't about the kiss. The story is about the reaction of straight right. people to the kiss. It's never yeah. about the gay it's person. It's always, right. oh, look at that. It's something to be, yeah. it's something to be ashamed of. It's something to be feared. And, and that was, so those are the messages that we were constantly being bombarded with when right. I was coming of age as a gay person. Yes. Um, so, yeah. and those are, I think those are totally rooted in very, wanting to choose my words very carefully here, but they are, it is rooted very much in a, in a religiosity that pervades our culture, whether people realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more profoundly the effects of that right now, very openly. And for that, I actually have a lot of gratitude because once the veil is lifted, mm. we have to do something about it. And that's what I think we're experiencing. Mm. I think we're seeing the lifting of the veil. We are, we are, as we are collectively seeing the shadow side as a society. And this is a make or break moment for us as a society to either determine we're going to do something about it or let ourselves be engulfed by it. You know, as a, as a white, as a white man, I have so much privilege. We have so much privilege. And I think that you're absolutely right. Lifting that veil helped me to realize, oh, my privilege has prevented me from seeing uh, the wrongdoings throughout history. And it's been so easy and tempting for me to lean into this idea of, oh, it's not that bad or, oh, it's not affecting me. And that's my privilege talking. So one thing I love about being gay is that <clears throat> one thing I love about being gay is that we permeate beyond the bounds of geography and we are in every race, religion, creed, ethnicity, every planet, every block, every, every city. Right. And so it's a social justice movement just to acknowledge your authenticity in an out and proud way. And we have also that responsibility of, of being our authentic selves, especially people like you and I with voices and with privilege. The more people, step forward and live their authentic lives, the better off we will be in the whole of society. And this goes for everyone, because I think even people who we might even look at and say they have greater privilege than we do, uh, they still have probably challenge with expressing their authentic selves. And so that's where the compassion for me comes in to realize we're all in this journey together. And so my job is to love. My job is to love. And then I always say, I don't always have to like people, but I do have to love them all. So it sounds to me based on what I know about you and what we've talked about that new thought has been, a, that the new thought church has been a vehicle that has helped you and aided in your ability to love. Can you go back to that story of when you entered new thought and because you said you didn't go to church. So what was that like for you going to church then? So how I got there the first time, uh, my, the, the funny thing is my mentor uh, in ministry teases me about this all the time. So I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, I was living up in the Valley and I was, I, I was 
working with a couple theater companies uh, as an actor, sound designer, and I was hired on a production of Angels in America. Oh God, I love that show. Yeah, I was hired to number one. I was understudying Pryor, mm. the character of Pryor. Just so heartbreaking. Yeah, and like for me, it was like the dream role of a lifetime. And mm -hmm. gratefully, I got even as an understudy, I got to go on. Like it was mm. like I got to actually play the role. So I was understudying Pryor, and uh, I also was the sound designer on the show because I was sitting there in rehearsal one night and the producer was talking about, well, we can't find a sound designer who's got the time to do this. And I said, I'm sitting here in rehearsal every night to do the, you know, to understudy the role. I could also do the sound design for the show. I had never sound designed in my life. I was just taking a leap of faith and they're like, okay. So I ended up sound being the sound designer for the show. <laughs> well, part of it, you know, I know, you know, the show, Part of the conceit of that particular play is that the angel in the play has to fly. Mm. And so we needed a theater that could support a fly rig. Mm -hmm. And because we were doing it on what was then the 99 seat uh, agreement, um, there aren't many 99 seat theaters in Los Angeles that have the kind of uh, space where you can set up a fly rig. And we found this one, it was in North Hollywood. It's no longer there, the NoHo Arts Center. Hmm. And it was basically the stage had, it was like two stories high. Hmm. There wasn't really a fly gallery, mm -hmm. but you could set up a fly rig. So we, we, the production company rented the space to do the production. And I heard that there was this funny, maybe kind of woo woo church that, uh, that operated there on Sundays and that the owner of the building and his husband, it was like he, the owner of the building and his husband, they owned they, the owner was the, was the minister. And, uh, all I could think is I am steering clear of that whole mess. I'm here to do my <laughs> job and that's it. So I was in the lobby before one of the shows one night and the house manager for the theater and I got into some small talk and that's back. I was still single at the time. And you know, as you get into the thing, Oh, I'm single. Blah, blah, blah. And she said, Oh, there's this guy that I know that is so handsome and he's gay. And you know, it's like the, the typical st story of the straight person. I know a gay person. So clearly you, know, you too. Yeah. I also yeah. got that so when clearly. I moved to, yeah, I got that when I moved to LA a lot from people in the Midwest they are like, you're moving to LA. My second cousin's brother has a lawyer that lives in LA. I'm like, I don't yeah. care. Yeah. So, but, but they mean said, well, they mean well. Yeah, they do mean well. Absolutely. So she said, Oh, I think you should meet him. And I thought, and, and she said, he comes to our church on Sundays. I said, I don't do church. I'm like, mm -mm, not doing it, not going there. Mm. And so for like a couple weeks, this went on where she kept trying to convince me that I should come and meet this guy. I finally said, thought to myself, okay, I can go, I can sit through a service. Like it's not going to kill me. And frankly, if I am struck down by lightning, well then at least I have an answer. Right. Um, <laughs> so I decide, fine, I will go to this service. And I went to the service and I met this guy and he, yes, he, he was very handsome and energetically, I was like, you're very handsome. And this is not a match. Like I just knew from meeting, I was like, this is not a match. Nice to meet you. But I sat down though and sat in the service and 
was just completely bowled over at what I was hearing from the platform because it felt so in alignment with my fundamental sense of spirituality. Mm. Cause I had basically developed this idea of how my spiritual life, I mean, I, I never didn't believe in God, but I had my own ideas about what God meant and what God was. And here they were being matched mm. in a way that I did not expect. You were, you were agnostic. And so, ish. yeah, I was basically agnostic sure. ish. Yeah, ish. So, so I started going every week to hear the message mm. and about six months later, I was sitting in a Sunday service, looking at the minister on stage. And that's just when it like flooded over me. And I thought, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. If there's ever a supposed to be, but that's my calling. That's how I can best use all that I've, all the talent that I've utilized in my life can all come together in a construct where I can do good mm. in this world. And so I started ministerial studies right away. Oh my away. gosh. Like I was, and, and it, and it turned out that, that I was just, it, the timing of it could not have been more divinely ordained because I had this awakening in that moment and I was able to step into the very first class that are the uh, prerequisites to get to the point where I was at, admitted into ministerial wow. school. And so, and I went through, I went straight through every class lined up exactly as it needed. And to. how old were you then? When you so started? that was, uh, I was 30, I was 30. Oh, you know what? I call it my Jesus year. I was 33 years old. Oh, wow. This is so fascinating that you, you didn't grow up. I never thought about this before. You didn't grow up in any, with any sort of religion. And not only did you jump headfirst in, but you jumped into the pursuit of leadership. I love that intersection. I, what I think that that is, we've mentioned this before, that what you were seeking is seeking you. I remember crying out um, more to my mom than to God. I remember phone calls, crying on the phone to my mom saying, what is my purpose? And I, you know, I was in LA for a while acting. I'm still an actor, but it was not, not much was happening. Uh, I hated my day job that was paying the bills. And when I, when I landed into life coaching, I was like, oh my God, I get to be a leader. I get to be a speaker. I get to use my acting for my, everything lined up and it just took time. But I also needed to ask that question. Like, why am I here? What were you doing before that? Well, you I were acting. acting. Yeah, I was acting. I mean, my, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. because That's I right. was primarily a theater actor. Um, and I, I never really broke into film and television and I have no regrets about that because I really loved the theater. Um, because I was doing theater, of course, I also had, you know, some day jobs because theater in LA does not pay very well. Uh, I was, I was mostly yeah. doing 99 seat shows, which, you know, they, they, they barely pay you enough for the gas it takes to get you to the theater. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually worked at Warner Brothers Studios for a while in uh, office services and Fine. property management. The, so the, the other thing that a lot of people don't know, I was a, I was a celebrity assistant for very well-known comedian. Hmm. Are you allowed to say? Um, I, I, I mean, I can say, but the thing is I want to respect the fact that I know personal things and I would not divulge yeah. them, but um, no, I was, I was Kathy yeah. Griffin's personal assistant for the better part of a year. <gasps> Fun. Yeah. Oh, I want to hear stories later, positive <laughs> stories later. 
Oh, that's fun. Shh, talk about a journey. Yeah. Kathy Griffin has been on a journey herself. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Okay, so that got you into ministry. Mm -hmm. And then what brought you to Tucson? Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we're skipping like that the was whole way thing. more recent. Yeah. So Tucson oh, I don't mean. Yeah. Talk to, what, what did we skip? I know we skipped a lot of like your whole life. Yeah. Your journey. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's so much about like, what is my journey? And okay. So if this is the great unbecoming, so part of it is I had to at some point decide yeah. at, there came a point where I decided, well, I need to set aside. I need to release any, any, not baggage. I don't want to say baggage. That's not the word I want to use. Um, I need to release some stuff in my life if I'm going to fully mm. step into ministerial leadership. So mm. I quit my day jobs right when I was about to finish ministerial school and uh, get my license for the first time. The day that I was, the day that I received my license, I went on Facebook and said, I passed. And a friend of mine who was living in Toronto saw that post reached out to me and he had been a member of our church in LA, but his job had taken him to, he had a job that took him to Toronto. He said, congratulations on your uh, first license as a minister. Our minister resigned two weeks ago. We need a minister. Oh my gosh. And so I wrote him back. I said, consider me a candidate. I went through the process six months later. I moved from Los Angeles to Canada <laughs> to Toronto. Right, right. Oh my God. I totally forgot about that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. And so I, I have you ever been to Canada before? You just I had been to Toronto. No, I had okay. been to Toronto once before, but it had been like at least easily, uh, 10 years since I had been How probably fun. actually almost 15 since I'd been to Toronto. Yeah. So I moved okay. to Toronto, Ontario. I, uh, while I, while I'm there, I met a tremendous being of light who I ended up marrying while I was in Toronto, Dane, my mm -hmm. husband. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had another one of those moments, just like my call to ministry. I was five and a half years into my ministry in Toronto as the senior minister, the spiritual director of the Center for Spiritual Living in Toronto. And I remember it was Easter Sunday in 2017. And I was, I had finished the service and I was sitting in the lobby talking to a couple of the board members for the church. And this kind of unexpected remark came out that I just said, you know, I, sometimes I think that what was mine to do here is complete. Hmm. And they both looked at me and they said, wait, what, what did you just say? I said, yeah, sometimes I feel like what was mine to do here is complete. And then I really started to reflect on it. And I thought, yeah, I think it's time to move on. Hmm. They said, give it 24 hours. Really? <laughs> Think really about think it. about this. Yeah. yeah. So I gave it 24 hours and I talked to Dane and I said, I think that it's time to be done mm -hmm. with this. I said, now the challenges for us as a married couple are I can stay here, but until I get permanent residency, I can't work because my, uh, my immigration was related to my job sure. and we had not gone through the process of me becoming a permanent resident there. Mm -hmm. I said, so, I don't know how long that process will take. He said, I don't really know that I want to continue to live in Toronto. Mm. And so we decided together blindly to move to Tucson, partially because when I was in ministerial school, mm. I had written a business plan for starting a new church, which was one of the assignments we were given. You had to write a business plan for starting a new church. And I just decided arbitrarily, oh, I'm going to do it in my 
hometown. I was born and raised in Tucson. I'm just going to write this business plan around starting a new church in Tucson. And I dusted off that business plan Wow! and thought, I think this is it. Wow. And so Dane and I, Dane had never been to Tucson. Wow. And he said yes to moving to Tucson. And then we had to go through the whole process of getting him a green card. That's a whole other part of the story. We were apart for 18 months while we were waiting wow. for that to happen. While he was in Canada and I was in, I was in wow. Tucson. So I landed in Tucson right at the beginning of 2018. And I did start a new church, the independent uh, New Thought Church called Tucson New Thought. While I was growing that church, I heard that the ministers at the well-established unity of Tucson were retiring after 53 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. in this pulpit. God, those shoes to fill. And <laughs> yeah, and so there were people from this community that were reaching out to me saying, we think that we've, we've come to check you out in your service. And we think that you should consider throwing your hat in the ring to be the minister at Unity of Tucson. Now, without getting into all the details of paths of new thought, there are different denominations within new thought. And it's like, you know, I was, I was in one denomination and unity is a different denomination. I basically was saying I it's, that's not my language. It's not my denomination. I'm much more comfortable on this side of the aisle. And that's what I know. Um, but I kept getting these messages from people. And so I went through the process. Um, it was not an easy process and I was not their first hmm. choice, but I was their <laughs> final choice when it came down to it. And, uh, yeah, and I, I signed a contract in February of 2020 to begin on April 1st, 2020. And in mid-March 2020, oh uh, the whole gosh. world shut down. And, and so it is not lost on me that I started in this pulpit on April Fool's Day and my entire first year in this ministry was to be a virtual minister and not actually wild meet any of wild, the community wild. in person for a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How did you like, I don't even know what yeah. to ask about that. Like, how did you process and handle that? I mean, did you, you can't prepare for a pandemic obviously. So what was that experience like for you? Not only being new, but being no. new to zoom, being new to everything online. Well, I wasn't new to, I wasn't new to the online minister experience. We were actually early adopters of live streaming mm. when I was in Los Angeles and I was helping, you know, I was going through ministerial studies while the minister came to me one day. He said, I want to, I have this idea about like live streaming our services. And like, there was no mm. public commercial infrastructure for mm -hmm. doing this easily. And I remember going in and like trying to figure out how do you get a video encoder? How do you do all these things? And so I was building live streaming systems 15 years before it became a huge part of the way we interact with each other. You so, have to under like, look at again, like what uh, alignment, everything yeah. prepared you for that moment. Yeah. And so I got here. Now the challenge, the challenge that I faced here is that you've been to this property. We're, we're in the foothills of the Catalina mountains. We have 18 acres of land. This building was built in 1986. So there are no cable lines and there are no high speed internet lines that run to this building. And mm -hmm. they've never brought them in because it would be like $20,000 to trench it in. So they were still operating on DSL 
for their internet mm. service when I got mm. there. I said, we cannot stream over DSL. It will not work. So for the first like six months until we upgraded our capacity here, we were pre-recording the service on Saturday. I would sit down with multiple cameras. I would edit a multi-camera shoot of the oh service. And then, and then I would like take this, this video home on a thumb drive, plug it into my computer where I had high-speed internet at home and like put it out live, right? Oh like it was a gosh. live service. I just want to pause for a second for people that don't know. Yeah. I just created a six and a half minute video that's going to be a new free resource. And it's a two camera setup. It took me hours to hours to edit it. Hours for a six and a half minute video. And you're talking about what, a 60 minute service a week? A 60 to 70 minute service every week. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, which shoot on Saturday, edit on Saturday and, and put out to the world on Sunday morning. And then, and then, um, because I, this is a way that I think a lot of ministers maybe didn't quite understand the, the technology hmm. of live streaming because hmm. a lot of ministers took what they knew, which was zoom. And they tried to put their service on zoom. And yeah. I think that was not necessarily the right path because the service in that regard is not necessarily, a an interactive experience right, services right. presentation. Right, 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 right. And so I was very clear. We are doing a, we are doing a live stream of the service and then we are going to have fellowship on zoom after the service. And so as part of the service, well, I would say, smart. here's the zoom link, join in for fellowship after the oh, service. Oh, I love that. So there's an opportunity anyway, to meet yeah. people and get to know people one-on-one, -on -one. not one-on-one, -on -one, but more personal. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. And now everything's booming. I mean, when I went, I, it was, it was packed the week that I preached so many people and it was God, when I came Friday for your event, um, it was just so many wonderful people that were just loved, love. They just loved to talk to me and to mm -hmm. one another. It was such a great experience. Yeah. yeah. We have a funny, um, thing in the, in the new thought movement, you know, and, and every church that you hear the news, all the churches is like, Oh, attendance is dwindling. Money's dwindling. Like it's, it's, it's the sob story of the century for churches. And I was at a, I was at the unity convention last week in Kansas city. They have a national convention every year. And, you know, a lot of when ministers get together, have you ever been in a group of ministers and hear them talk like behind closed doors? Mm, more just like you and a couple of your friends at, at Friday night, but no, not the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting experience, but a lot of it is, you know, how, like, what are the challenges we're facing? And that's what mm -hmm. a lot of people talk about. You know, what are the challenges we're facing? And I just heard so many sob stories about, oh, you know, our attendance is down, money's down, just kind of the thing you hear in society. And I'm like, you know what? I don't accept that. My church is thriving. We are growing. We're doing really well. Like, it's a thing. And so, and it's not to, like, say, oh, I'm doing so much <laughs> better than you. Look how great I am. I'm not saying that at all. I'm, like, saying... If we turned our minds around around the experience and we actually started become to adaptable. evolve our yeah. ministries to be in alignment and become adaptable, you will find that people will um, yeah, be attracted beautiful. to that. Um, and you did that. Yeah. And so now yeah. we're almost to the part of your Camino de Santiago. Ah, yes. I said it right. I should have yes. Googled. In this whole time, Picante. I said, let me, let me just Google. 
I just need to Google this. Camino de Palermo. Well, you know what's funny is as I was typing in, Camino de Santiago came up. Camino de Palmer- Palermo. Uh, literally, you know what's coming up is Camino de Santiago. <laughs> I don't know what Camino de Palmero is. I made it up. Anyway, what is the Camino de Santiago? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so the Camino de Santiago is an ancient pilgrimage. Um, that, well, there's, so, oh, wow. How do you even begin? Like, I have to take my glasses off for this. So many people know of the Camino de Santiago because there was a film that was done by uh, Emilio Estevez, his director, starring his father, Martin Sheen, called The Way. And that's how a lot of people are introduced to the Camino de Santiago. It's an ancient pilgrimage that is now traditionally recognized as a Catholic pilgrimage. But people from all walks of faith do it for many different reasons. Um, I mean, uh, on on average, about 300,000 people walk this pilgrimage every year. Uh, there is some historical evidence that before the Catholics got their hands on it, that there may have been pagan ritual ties to this idea. Um, but And there are many paths that all converge on Santiago de Compostela uh, in Galicia, which is in the north western part of Spain. And at the cathedral in uh, Santiago is the, are the remains of St. James. That's, uh, sorry, my eyes, all of a sudden I've got something in my eye. I know this is really a- attractive on camera. Um, so Catholics, you know, are going to, you know, where the, where, where St. James is entombed and, and uh, the relics of St. James exist. And like I said, there are actually Camino paths all over Europe. And there are multiple paths that people will typically walk in Spain. The one that I walked was the Camino Frances, which starts on the French side of the Pyrenees in a small village called Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. And from there, you walk 800 kilometers to get to Santiago de Compostela. And it takes... uh, usually just over a month to walk the entire distance. 800 kilometers. Can you, how many miles is that? So 800 kilometers is almost, it's like 590, uh, no, no, 490, 500 miles ish. Wow. It took you about a month. And yeah, I, I had 34 days of walking and two days of rest. So from the day I started to the day I finished was 36 days. How many days of walking versus how many days of rest? I walked 34 days and had two days of rest. Wow. You rested only two days. Okay. Yeah. Wild. One was out of necessity. Sure. <laughs> yeah, because on day five, um, my uh, my ankles became very inflamed. Oh, no. Um, I, I didn't sprain them, but they were just heavily strained, and they started to, like, swell up, and I just decided I needed to have a day off. And I stayed in my little hostel that day in this tiny, tiny little village. And gratefully, they had a good pharmacy where I was able to go get ibuprofen and some ankle wraps. And then after that rest day, I was able to continue. Wow. The second rest rest day was actually a planned rest Mm -hmm. day in Leon because I wanted to do touristy things in Leon. I wanted to go to the cathedral and see the city. So in some ways, that wasn't even a rest day. Yeah, kidding. Like I, 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 any day of tourist, being a tourist, especially in Europe, feels exhausting. Did you do this yeah. alone, or was this with a group? 
I did this on my own. Wow. So, I mean, I don't even know what to ask you, but like, talk to me about, let me ask you some pointed questions. Tell me one thing that was surprising. Tell me one surprising experience you had. Well, I will preface by saying one thing that really surprised me is I knew it was not going to be easy. What I Mm -hmm. didn't expect was how painful it was physically. I didn't expect as Hmm. much physical pain as I actually experienced. Wow. And so that was, that was a big surprise. Um, What really surprised me? One, one thing that really comes to mind as well is the very close bonds I made with other, some of the other pilgrims that I, I, purposefully set out to have this be my own sacred journey. People asked, Hey, can I go on the pill on the Camino with you? When I told them I was doing it and I said, this was my answer. I said, you can absolutely start the pilgrimage with, with me, but I will not be beholden to your pace and I will not be beholden to your journey. I am on this journey for myself. I love that. And what I ended up finding was this construct and you hear about it. Like I hear about it now when people talk about other pilgrims talk about the Camino that you develop what they call a Camino family. And that's absolutely Mm -hmm. true. I think about, I think about, you know, my friends now Todd and Holly who live in Utah and uh, Kingsley and Marianne who are from British Columbia and my very close association with this guy named Bill. I have to tell you about Bill and it's funny um, who lives in Atlanta. And I met Bill after my first day of walking Hmm. and he and I were arbitrarily seated at the same table at our pilgrim dinner, uh, after the first day of walking. And we were walking into the, to the cafeteria and there was a guy saying, where are you from? What language do you speak? And so he was grouping people by common language so that we could actually have conversation with each other. And so I sat with Bill and a couple of other guys. And one thing about the pilgrimage is every pilgrim meal you go to, you get a full bottle of red wine and you get lots of bread. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so Bill was going to put the cork in the wine and it like plopped over and the entire bottle of wine spilled into my lap. And this is after he had found out that I was a minister. Love and it. he was absolutely mortified yeah. <laughs> that he had drenched this minister in day one red too. wine. And he thought, yeah, day one. And he, yeah, so he, he was so mortified. And so we finished the meal. He apologizes profusely. We go to the hostel, we sleep, we get up in the morning and I start, I set off walking on my own, which was my intention every day. About halfway through the day, we ran into each other on on the way and chatting with each other. And he told me this later. He said, he said, you know, that chat was very informative for me because as we were walking, you were so gracious and so kind about me spilling this whole bottle of wine in your lap. I knew in that moment that you were genuine Mm. in your graciousness. Mm. And so I knew that we were going to be friends. And what ended up happening is we walked a few days together then I surpassed him and then my, then my ankle thing happened and then he surpassed me. We met up again at another place, but we constantly kept in contact. 
through text message and we still text message each other all the time even now I've been back for like well it has to be something that no one else sorry sorry, that no one else's experience it's a shared experience yeah. yeah yeah and it's hard to talk about the Camino in a lot of ways because I think I'm still you know I'm so fresh off of it in so many ways I'm still like discovering what the lessons are mm. it's it's not the same but i remember when i studied abroad for a year in college i, I couldn't answer the question how was it i was like how much time do you have right um so i mean how do i even ask that question can you talk can you touch a little bit on your own spiritual journey and has that in any way shape and form has the has the pilgrimage enriched your own spiritual journey in any ways and and how can what can you say about that yes it has before i left i gave actually a sunday sermon where i talked about my anticipation of the camino and a lot of the stuff that i had read is be prepared to physically lessen your weight as you go i mean part of it too is you carry everything uh, you, you know, my, I, I, I had a pack, I had a sleeping bag and like the, I had two t-shirts. I mean, part of it too is it's so gross because you take as few clothing items as you possibly can because you don't want to carry. One too of them's drenched in wine. Want, yeah. <laughs> um, but you're basically carrying everything. And I had read Shirley MacLaine's book. Shirley MacLaine walked the Camino in, in the nineties and I had read her book and she mm. said, you know, there were points where she would like drop a pair of socks because it was just that much. That was, it was that, that weight was just too much. So I started thinking about what are the things that I'm going to shed? What are the things that I'm going to drop? And I thought, well, what if I actually start the Camino having shed already, what would happen mm. then? And so when I arrived to start, I arrived with this idea that I was not carrying anything from my past and Mm. that I was just going to be completely open to putting one foot in front of the other and allowing the journey to unfold. And that for me Mm. is a great spiritual practice. Mm. I got it. There was a one point in the Camino where I got that reminder as well. And it was a sign somewhere and it just said, be where your feet are. Hmm be where your feet are. And I just, I started to really think about that idea of everywhere I am stepping forward. If I can just be present in this moment as the presence, then releasing the past, releasing any anxiety or fear of the future, life is pretty darn good Mm. in this moment. And if I allow that moment to moment goodness to maintain, then I'm actually living a blessed life of joy. Then I found out there's a Jason. Yeah. Then I found out there's a Jason Mraz song called be where your feet are. (laughs) Hmm. And when I got back, and when I got back to uh, my community here, I actually sang it the first Sunday I was back. I sang that song. Of course you did. (laughs) Of course you did. I love that. Oh gosh, that was so good. And also I can't believe I've been talking for an hour because well, anytime I talk to you, it feels like it's way less time. So that's not surprising. I, there's one person listening to this that really is intrigued and maybe their stars are aligning as well. And they are thinking about 
doing their own pilgrimage, what would you have to say to that one person that's listening right now, listening to your words? Don't fear the journey. It's absolutely worth it. I think the only thing that ever holds anyone back from walking their own Camino, and that's kind of how I use it as a metaphor. What is the journey you're walking? Whether you decide to do that specific kind of pilgrimage or not, we're all walking our own Camino. And you can either walk it with fear or you can walk it with love. Hmm. But if you walk it with fear, you will never proceed as far as you would like. But if you walk it with love, you will exceed all expectation. Ooh, we got another good soundbite. I needed that. We all have our own journey to walk. You're walking the Camino de Santiago and I'm walking the Camino de Palermo, Palermo which is literally nothing. I made it up. Um, how can people reach out to you, Dr. Zenz? That's fun. So, so it's, I have to laugh at this question because when you like sent me the thing and I'm like, Oh, I have to put in my socials. I'm like, I am so bad at social media. I'm, but I'm so bad at social media. So first of all, I have a Rev Jonathan Zenz like Instagram that I post to like maybe three or four times a year. So my real Instagram is at Jonathaz. That's a great place to follow me because that's where I kind of put all of my personal stuff. That's where the most authentic me comes out. And I actually did a series that I, didn't finish during pride month where I was doing a pride post almost Mm. every day. Like, and I started with a picture of me when I was 17 years old, talking about who that person was in relationship to pride. And then each day I would do a year later. Um, And so, um, I got to day 19, I haven't finished and lots of things came up and I then put a post and said, Oh, so, Pride isn't just a month, so these posts are going to continue until I'm done. Period. Yeah, make it work for you. <laughs> so, so sorry. At Jonathaz, um, also UnityTucson.com mm-hmm. is my church, and we live stream. If you're interested in seeing, you know, the show, I call it Enlightenment through Entertainment because it is a bit of a show, and and not everybody's always expecting that, but there's always a great message and it's always rooted with lots of music. And I always say, I want to, I want to have a fun experience on Sunday. Cause if I don't have fun, I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's, and I've been there before and it is absolutely rooted in love. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. Rev Zenzi. So good to see you. So good to see you. We'll I'm always to, we'll delighted to, to see you. hang out again soon. Yes. Likewise, y'all, thank you so much for listening. If you want to uh, talk to me, if this resonated with you, if you want any information on uh, my uh, 10-week program designed to help gay, bi, trans men free themselves from shame, you can uh, email me at eric at lifecoachingbyfeltus.com or you can Instagram DM me at Eric Feltus, and we will see you next time. Bye. All right, my friends, that's all we have for you today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Great Unbecoming. And if you did, please share this on your social media and tag me, Eric Feltus. That's Eric Feltus on Instagram and Facebook and Eric.Feltus on TikTok. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts and go ahead and give us a five-star review. Your ratings and reviews are really the fuel that keep us going. And we're so grateful for your support. And of course, check out this episode and all episodes on our YouTube channel at Life Coaching by Feltis. 
And finally, don't forget to go to www.lifecoachingbyfeltus.com and sign up for our email list and stay up to date on everything that's coming up and going on in our shame-free community. I will see you next time. And until then, know that in this space, you are always seen, supported, and celebrated. Bye for now.